Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Natalie Christensen of Yeelands originally wanted to compose film scores or be a music therapist. But after what she calls a quarter-life crisis in HR, she got a harvest job in a winery and it changed her life. Listen to us chat about her time in Galicia making Alberino, a love of Sauvignon Blanc, the lay of the land in Marlborough, the appeal of colourful clothing and why machine harvesting gets an unfairly bad press. Oh, thanks. Hi, Tim. How are you going? I'm really good. Um, it's quite early in the morning here, but what time is it there? I mean, I hate to ask, frankly. Well, it's not too bad. It's 8pm on a Sunday evening, so <laughs> you're just sort of all cosy and relaxed by the fire because it's obviously winter over here and it's a bit chilly at the moment. Today, have you? Because you're super focused on what you do, or have you had a day off? On my most definitely had a day off. No, the winter time <laughs> is definitely a time to stay away from the winery over the weekends for sure. Which is <laughs> Christchurch, right in the South Island. Uh, you were born, brought up there. J- just was wine part of your life growing up then? And was there a wine scene already developing by then? I mean, you're still pretty young, so presumably it was already developed by then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so when I was growing up in Christchurch, there wasn't a major wine scene. Uh, like a friend of mine, she worked in the cellar door at Pegasus Bay, so I knew about Pegasus Bay, and yeah. um, Geeson was definitely a brand that I'd heard of. Um, but, yeah, not when I was sort of a teenager growing up. There wasn't – I was sort of drinking RTD mixes and that sort of thing and drinking sort of cheap wine out of cask. And were parents wine drinkers or not? Did your parents um, drink wine? Yeah, no, they did drink some wine. Um but, yeah, I wouldn't say they were, you know, drinking fancy wines or anything like that. It was, um, you know, just whatever was going. But, yeah, Dad liked to drink rum. I remember I'd drink the froth off Dad's rum and Cokes. Um, but, yeah, yeah. And, and were your parents musicians? Because, you, you know, you studied music, didn't you, to start with? Yeah, no, my parents weren't musicians. Um, yeah, my dad is actually very sporty. He played hockey for New Zealand and went to three Olympics. Wow. He was in the Olympic team in Montreal 1976 when New Zealand actually took home gold. So I guess my childhood was very much um, dad doing lots of sporty things, uh, always in the back garden practicing his golf swing or going on a run or, um, yeah, being very active. And whereas mum was more kind of, I guess, the artistic side. So she had a, um, she was into pottery and had a potting wheel in the garage and, um, yeah, painting and arty, arty kind of things. So. Yeah, nice kind of mix of the two, I guess, by having both ends of the spectrum in the household. Why the double bass? Well, actually, that's a funny thing. I was really into singing when I was at primary school, and I was part of what was called, I guess, the special choir, which um, the I guess the top singers from the local primary schools would get together in this sort of master choir and sing at this choral festival. And there was this orchestra um, that would play with the choir every night, and there was quite a cute um, cello player that led the cellos. And so I thought, oh, right, well, maybe one day I'll play the cello and I might get to play alongside this man or this boy at the time. 
Uh, and so when I got to high school, I asked if I could play the cello, uh, but they didn't have any available. But they said, oh, no, we've got this double bass. We want to learn that. So I did learn that. And, yeah, and that was that. <laughs> and, and you did a degree in music, didn't you? And I read somewhere that your initial plan was to become a film composer. Is that right? Yeah. So when I first left high school, um, yeah, I loved music and I loved writing music. And uh, I really liked how music could create a feeling and sort of set a scene and bring an emotion and take you to a place. Um, and especially in a group environment, you know, you could be taking a lot of people on some journey. Uh, and, you know, I lived and breathed music music at that point. So, yeah, I went to Victoria University in Wellington to study composition uh, because it was uh, when the film industry was really taking off in New Zealand. It was when Lord of the Rings was first getting um, filmed and that kind of thing. Um, but then I, yeah, I decided I really kind of liked the healing properties of music. So that's when I picked up a psychology degree as well because my, my original plan was to do a master's in music therapy. So you went and did a master's in psychology instead, yeah, and the idea w- was to become a music therapist, wasn't it? I mean, just tell us about, about how does music therapy work? Because music can be very soothing, but it can also be quite disturbing. Uh, just how do therapists use music? Well, I went to a few, um, I guess, workshops about it when I was interested in it, and there were only two or three registered music therapists in New Zealand at the time. Um, but basically, like some of the things you can do with music if you've got a patient who's got Alzheimer's, um, the part of the brain um, to do with music goes um, after the part of the brain that is involved with speech. So you can get people singing along to old familiar songs that gives them a sense of peace and they can still talk or sing these songs. So you actually make them feel comfortable and a bit more at ease, even though they can be quite agitated and quite confused because they might be, you know, sort of in the further sort of stages of you know deterioration I guess and also um like children with disabilities um they may feel as though it can make them feel connected or children with autism um they might not be very good at communicating orally but you know you give them a drum or you give them something and they're actually interacting with other people um and they feel connected and they feel like they're achieving something or they're getting a result and they're interacting in a way that's you know, that works for them. It's amazing then, isn't it, that, that music does talk to parts of the brain that other things don't, basically. It's, it's, it's reaching, it's, it's almost a, a direct line to the brain that's bypassing a conscious mind, in a sense, is it? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't end up studying it, so I don't know the ins and outs of it. But, it has, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's definitely something that I've always been fascinated with, and I feel like... Um, in some aspects, it kind of really speaks to your soul and you can get really sort of strong connections to things and describe things that you can't necessarily put into words, but you can describe it through a piece of music. So, you know, I feel like it's a very fascinating, fascinating thing that we get to experience in this lifetime. So, yeah. Well, it is, isn't it? I often think, I mean, I know a few professional musicians and, you know, rock musicians, and sometimes they just say that there are, there are evenings when concerts just work and you're playing the same songs you played the night before. It's yeah. just there's an energy in the room and a connection with people that people don't even know each other. But yeah, the, again, that's something that's occurring at a level again uh, that we don't understand. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree, I agree completely. 
I mean, so which you got a job in HR, which you suddenly had this quarter life crisis, as you call it. I mean, yeah. what happened? How did you end up there? Well, so basically, I was doing also I was doing a double degree at the time. So I was doing my music degree, and I was doing a um, a BA in psychology. And then in the last year of my undergraduate, I did this paper in industrial organizational psychology, and they were offering a master's of science in that. And basically. Yeah, I'd been doing all these artsy fartsy, airy fairy, beautiful things, and this paper was very kind of businessy, and it felt like a very safe career choice. And so, yeah, they only—I think they only accepted twelve. Can't remember. There weren't that many people that they accepted into this master's program. Um, so when I got in, I thought it was a gift and it was going to set me up for the future. So I did a master's of science in industrial organizational psychology. And I really enjoyed learning about it. Um, but, yeah, in the real world, it's like, oh, God, I don't want to be a support function for, you know, for a business. I want to be <laughs> creating something or part of core business. Yeah. I guess it was great that I figured that out early on. So I was 25 at the time. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty stressful. I had a massive student loan. I had all, all these degrees. And then I quit my job after eight months in HR. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And how did you move into wine? Well, my brother was actually living in Marlborough at the time. He wasn't working in wine. Uh, and he said, maybe you just need to go traveling for a bit. You know, you've been studying for so long. You just need to go overseas. Um, why don't you come to Marlborough, work a harvest, save some money, and head off? So that's what I did, and that was in 2006. I did my first harvest at St. Clair Family Estate, and that was at the time where they'd just built um, a new winery and they'd moved into their own space. And I loved it. I couldn't believe it was a job. And, yeah, that was that, the start of start of everything. What did they have you doing? Bit of everything? Uh, yeah, I was mostly working in the lab when I first started, so analysing all the juices and um, checking on the ferments and that kind of thing. Uh, and then they offered me a permanent job at the end of harvest, and then I did sort of a hybrid lab and cellar role. And within a year or so, they offered me a, um, an assistant winemaking job. So, yeah, it was great. I loved it. <laughs> and, and so you went back to school again, didn't you, and did a, a graduate diploma in enology. Um, so that was another qualification, right? Yeah. When did you do that? Did you do that while you, while you were working? Yeah, so I was studying that part-time while I was working full-time. Hmm. I can't believe how many degrees you've got. Oh, God. Yeah, no, so I haven't studied anything since. I'm a retired student now, yeah. <laughs> and and, and w was it useful to have that professional qualification, do you think, I mean, learning about the science of wine? Because you had a bit of that, presumably, already, bit with, through psychology, some of the science side? Uh, no, like my psychology degree wasn't really sort of chemistry-based or bio mm -hmm. biology, really. It was, I mean, there was sort of brain science and brain chemicals and mm. um, that kind of thing. So I really enjoyed doing the graduate diploma in, in enology and especially after all the practical experience I had and sort of going through that stuff at the time, it just made so much sense. And it was, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed studying it. And, and you came top of your year, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It was top equal, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a bit of an overachiever, I think. I mean, no, your dad oh, is a gold God. medal winner. Uh, I think you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he set the bar high, so, yeah, it's hard to keep up. <laughs> and you've done quite a few overseas harvests, or you did in the start, didn't you? Bordeaux, Oregon. I mean, travel's sort of second nature to most Kiwis, but just tell us what those experiences taught you, you know, working in Bordeaux and Oregon. 
Yeah, so Bordeaux was my first harvest, and I did that in 2007, so I was very green in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the first foreign intern this winery had had, and I think when I first arrived, um, yeah, I think they were like, what are we going to do with this young girl? But then they figured mm-hmm. out I was actually quite useful and quite practical and quite handy. So, yeah, they got me doing everything. And I think it was yeah, it was a really good eye-opener for me going from – I guess, new world winemaking, um, you know, very particular about certain things to seeing how you can do things. And um, I remember I inoculated the whole white cellar within like probably an hour, whereas, you know, in New Zealand, <laughs> you know, that wouldn't be a thing. And, but it was beautiful. Like the guys over there, um, they really took me under their wing. It was duck hunting season. So they taught me how to shoot. And I went out for a night with all the the old dudes and spent the night in their equivalent of a Mai Mai. I, well, I don't really know what it's called over there. <laughs> and then they're all drinking whiskey and yeah, but no, it was a really fun, fun experience. And uh, it was just great to sort of see the culture of long lunches and drinking under, you know, under the trees and like a warm, you know, those end of summer days. So yeah, I liked that. I really liked that because we don't really do too much of that in New Zealand, but um, yeah, something. Yeah. And yeah. Oregon? I loved Oregon. I On my flight home, I cried. A whole flight from um, Portland to. That's uh, a long flight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cried and then I entered the green card lottery every year after that for about five years. Um, but yeah, I loved it up there too. Just the. Like it was. It was that was in 2010 and there was that kind of the farm to fork mentality and all heirloom vegetables and mm-hmm. farmers markets and yeah, I just loved the. I don't know, very kind of natural outdoorsy lifestyle, which is quite, you know, similar to being back in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, your bravest move, I think, was to go to Galicia, right, to work at La Caña. <laughs> I've been, I was there last week with American oh, wow. importer Jorge Olonia. I was in the cellar last week. I mean, how oh. did you end up in Galicia? I mean, did you speak Spanish? I mean, what was the link there? Oh, um, it was a pretty random link. Um, it all happened quite quickly. Uh, I was actually living in the Wairarapa at the time, working for Mata Hiwi Estate. And I had gone to a friend's house one Friday night and I was just chatting to them, and I said, "Oh, are you guys still going to America to do harvest?" And they said, "Oh no, you know, we're going to we're going to Spain now." Um, but the company that we're working for, they're looking for a white winemaker, like a permanent role. You know, what do you think? Maybe maybe we should give it a go. So they got me in touch with this woman in Spain, and I sent her my CV on the Saturday. And by Tuesday afternoon, she had offered me a permanent role, which started in a month. So I had a full time job in New Zealand. I had a house full of stuff. I had a boyfriend. I had a cat. I didn't speak any Spanish, and I was off to off to Spain to make Albarino. <laughs> I was like, why not? Did you, did you take the cat and the boyfriend? No, no, um, no. Unfortunately, um, the cat had to stay at home, and yeah, my no, boyfriend couldn't come. <laughs> and how long did you stay there? I was there on and off for about eighteen months. So. Yeah. Uh, when I first went over there, I actually didn't have a proper visa. So that sort of came unraveled. Um, so I had to come home to New Zealand and sort that out. Uh, I had an interpreter while I was there and she actually dobbed me in. So that wasn't ideal. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I came back and got all that sorted and then I went back. So that's when I actually did my first harvest at uh, Yellens was in 2014 when I was um, home sorting out visa stuff. And then I went back um, to Spain after that. Yeah. And then you went back to Yellens full time in 2015, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. And you've been yeah. there ever since, right? D- d- just tell tell us a bit about the company because it's quite large, isn't it? Sixth biggest in New Zealand, am I right in saying that? 
yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I love it. I, it's, I think it's, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like a secret. Well, not a secret, but I remember before I went there, I kind of thought, oh, Yellen's, you know, like, you know, they make savvy. They're sort of a big company. Um, didn't really know much about it. And then it wasn't until I actually went out to the site and started tasting the wines and spending time with the people. And I was like, this place is amazing. Like, it's one of the most – have you been out to Yellen's? Yes, I have, yeah. It, it's Aotearoa, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's right on the coast in the Aotearoa Valley uh, in Marlborough. And I think it's one of the most scenic vineyards, definitely in New mm-hmm. Zealand, if not, you know, around the world. Uh, but it's so beautiful. Uh, I'm always driving over the hill into the sunrise, looking over the Cook Strait, and on a clear day you can see Wellington. And there's Mount Tapionuku, which is uh, New Zealand's second highest peak outside Mount Cook National Park. Yeah, it's just hugely scenic, beautiful sunrise. I know that drive. Yeah. That drive exactly as you come over the hill, you think, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. T- t- and it still gets me, yeah. <laughs> t- tell us a bit about Marlborough and its sub-regions, because many of the people listening to the podcast will have drunk wines from there, obviously, but they might not have visited. I mean, New Zealand's a long way away from Europe if they're listening in Europe. Just yeah. tell the differences between Owatry, where most of your vineyards are, and, say, the Wairau, which people may be more familiar with. I mean, how does that affect style where your vineyards are? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because – um, when I worked at St. Clair, St. Clair does a lot of um, single block wines and sub-regional wines. So mm. I personally thought I had a really great handle on what Aotearoa Sauvignon was. And the classic sort of descriptors for Aotearoa Sauvignon, um, sort of tomato stem, tomato leaf, uh, sort of more green herbal characters. But when I got to Yellen's, I was like, that's, that's not all it is at all. Um, mm. And I think Yellen's... Where, so where we're situated is the area is known as Seaview. And the wines at Seaview especially, there's a, a real mineral character. There's a, a chalky tension through the palate, and the wines are quite, um, I guess they have quite a lot of structure and elegance to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wines from the Wairo Valley, there's the lower Wairau, uh, which can be that more kind of tropical, uh, fruity spectrum with slightly sort of softer acidity. And then... As you work up the valley, it can get a bit more greener. Um, yeah, but I think the key difference is the, the Wairo Valley is more of that kind of tropical, fruity spectrum, and it's a little bit warmer, um, whereas the Aotearoa is a little bit cooler, later ripening, drier. It's very dry in the Aotearoa. There's um, a lot of wind. Um, the skins can be quite thick, so the wines can be quite intense. But, yeah, kind of a more green kind of herbal structural element through them. And higher acidity in the tree wines? Yeah, they, the acidity is higher, but I think it's almost – you don't necessarily get a pinched feeling from that acidity. And we almost get a subtle saltiness through the palate, which makes the palates feel quite rich and quite voluptuous, even though there is a very fresh acidity sort of going on in there, just looking at the numbers. Yeah, you guys are quite big vineyard owners as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So um, we own the vineyard that surrounds our, our winery, and that is 1,200 hectares. Um, but, yeah, sort of company versus grower fruit, we're about 60% company-owned, and we have 40% of our productions from grower vineyards. And, and how do you guys farm with your own vineyards? I mean, and just tell us a little bit about, about you do that, but also things like picking. I mean, is it picked by hand or by machine? Yeah, so uh, – Picking-wise, it's mostly machine harvested. 
And I think there's this, you know, there can be a perception that, you know, high quality wines have to be all hand picked, but that's not necessarily the case for, for Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, there's been a lot of research through Lincoln University around um, that thiol character, which, or the thiols that are present in Sauvignon Blanc, which is that see, passion fruit and grapefruit and all that kind of thing. Um, they're actually released a lot more or better um, through machine harvesting and mm. you don't really get that when you're sort of doing hand-picked styles. But also Marlborough, there's no way we could get enough pickers into Marlborough to hand all, all of Marlborough, but stylistically we don't want to because we're not getting the most expressive styles like we do when we do machine harvested. Um, That's interesting. So machine harvesting is actually helps the style is what you're saying with the Yeah, thighs. totally. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of research. If you Google that, there's a lot of research around that. Um, but if you're doing a barrel fermented style of Sauvignon, so we do a little bit of barrel fermented um, stuff, we we hand pick that and whole bunch press it to have it a little bit more neutral mm-hmm. without those really sort of pungent sort of flavours. Um, and what about farming of your own vineyards? Yeah, so Peter Yellen's the founder. So we opened on the 8th of the 8th, 2008. Uh, Pete no longer owns the company. Uh, but his philosophy was he wanted to be one of the most sustainable wineries in the world. So um, we were carbon zero from the very beginning. And so, yeah, there's a lot of sort of sustainability aspects to uh, the production. And um, we've got the largest solar panel installation in New Zealand and uh, a lot of wetlands and, um, yeah, to to encourage native birds and sort of give back, I guess, to the land. So we've also got a lot of interrow plantings with wildflowers to help with soil structure and um, moisture retention. And, yeah, we do have an organic conversion on the vineyard. Um, so, yeah, it's about, yeah, there's a, a sliver of organic production through the vineyard. But, yeah, we're doing kind of a structured trial with that because the main contributor to um, carbon is diesel for us so we closely monitor all our diesel um use and yeah there's definitely higher diesel inputs when we're working organically so yeah it's just something we kind of we do a hybrid of things in the vineyard to to create the create the wines and you're part of something called the international wineries for climate action group yes Yeah, yeah we've just achieved gold status with those guys so um, yeah, basically it sees us um, reduce our carbon emissions by, I think it's 50% by 2030. Yeah, I need to yeah, double-check the facts on that. But, um, yeah, no, it's definitely a big part of our DNA. And this, the International um, Wineries for Climate Action, it's a, a collective group and we sort of share a lot of knowledge. So, yeah, it's a, a really great group to be a part of. Do, do, is New Zealand ahead of the game on reducing its carbon footprint? It seems to be. It's, it's hard to say, like I don't know a lot about what's happening around the world in that space, uh, but New Zealand has definitely always been aware of it and we've got sustainable wine growing New Zealand, which 90, I think it's 98% or 95 to 98% of New Zealand wineries are part of. So, um, yeah, these other accreditations are over and above that. So, yeah, I think everyone in New Zealand is conscious of it and most wineries are operating in sustainable ways and sort of very conscious of what they need to do. 
I want to talk to you a little bit about your winemaking style, because as you said, you know, you've studied in Bordeaux, been in Bordeaux, been in Oregon, this Galicia trip, uh, yeah. a lot in yeah, three different wineries in New Zealand. I mean, does it piss you off when people say, oh, her wines are feminine? I mean, does that annoy you when people say that? I mean, it's an easy thing to say, isn't it? I don't know if anyone's ever said my wines are feminine, Tim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I haven't been pissed off by that comment at all. <laughs> so how would you describe the style? What are you, what are you searching for? Um, well, when I'm making wines, I definitely want to make them enjoyable and drinkable and approachable, and they're not ego-driven wines of making them very austere or trying to do something just to be cool or, um, yeah, I want to be true to the site and express something that's enjoyable for people to drink. So I think that's, that's the style of wine that I like making and I want to make it delicious. I want people to be like, okay, that's yum. And I want to have, you know, I want to drink that. Not kind of like, oh, yeah, that's very complex and interesting. Uh, but, yeah, I couldn't actually drink that. <laughs> but I think there's a very la- there, you know? <laughs> there are. We know wines like that. I think that's a very laudable aim to want to make wines that people yeah. want to drink. Right. Know? That's the aim. That's yeah. the goal. Yeah. I mean, most of what you make is Sauvignon Blanc, and that's true of New Zealand as a whole. I think you're probably, what, mm-hmm. 80% Sauvignon, are you? Maybe more. Yeah, so, yeah, we do, we'd be 80 to 85% Sauvignon yeah. from where we are. And that's a bit like New Zealand these days, isn't it, probably? Yeah, yep, I think that's yeah. about how it pans out, yep. I mean, the category is very large, and at the bottom end, you know, it's something of a commodity, let's be honest. How do you make your wine stand out? I mean, how do you build layers into Sauvignon? Because you make lots of different ones, don't you? Yeah, uh, well, I think... Like every year we do, I guess, a blind tasting of all our Sauvignon ferments. And I don't want to give out our secrets, but our secret weapon, I think, is the Seaview Vineyard in the Aotearoa Valley. So, um, yeah, we just get beautiful texture through those wines and weight and, and aromatics. So, yeah, I don't know. What about things like natural yeast? Are you using natural yeast or are you using cultured yeasts? Mostly cultured yeast for um, for our main sort of blends, and we do. There's some small parcel stuff that we've sort of played around with native ferment, but mm. you do lose. Why well, I found anyway, you lose a lot of the the fruit freshness and mm. vibrancy that I quite like in in Sauvignon and the styles that we're making. Mm. So, yeah, unless we're doing something stylistic like a barrel fermented mm. style, where I would use natural yeasts, um, I like to keep things fresh and vibrant and also when you're dealing like some of our ferments are 200,000 litres you know you don't want it going rogue with some wild yeast that you're not happy with (laughs) that could be a very expensive mistake couldn't it yeah yeah that that would be the end of your career right well I don't know oh yeah (laughs) and what what about things like like sort of concrete eggs or amphoras Mm -hmm. are those things that you can use with Sauvignon just to add a little dash of something else into the wine into certain wines yeah, most definitely. So we've got a range called State of Flux, which is um, wines that are fermented solely in concrete eggs. Mm. So it's a very sort of small batch. Um, and we also, yeah, ferment a little bit in barrel and also 1,000-litre ovals. Um, yeah. And one thing I played around with this year, which was something that I learned when I was working with El Barino and Galicia, but I did a trial on soaking Sauvignon on its skins in the press to see if you could get more flavour um, mm-hmm. and drop acidity naturally. So mm-hmm. that's something I want to play around with a bit. Yeah. Did it work? 
Well, it definitely got an acidity drop and yeah, it was interesting. So I did it at different temperatures. So um, I soaked at eight degrees and so mm-hmm. that worked quite well. But anything that was sort of soaking more ambient didn't really work so well. And the warmer soaked ferments are a bit grubbier, not as fresh and bright as the cold soaked. So, yeah, I learned some things, but I need to explore that further. I mean, which other varieties are you working with? It's 80% Sauvignon, but you also got Pinot Noir, haven't you? And your first Albarino is out now, isn't it? From yeah. well, not, your first, not your first ever Albarino, but your first no. Albarino from Yeelands, right? Yes, 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 yes. So that's mm. definitely a favourite baby of mine. Uh, but yeah, we've got a lot of different varieties out there. So <clears throat> Pinot Noir, we've even got Tempranillo, Gewürztraminer, Grunewaldliner, Riesling, uh, Pinot Gris. What have I missed out? Bound to have missed out something. Uh, but yeah, no. And we've got some Shenan in the ground <clears throat> that we should be getting our first crop, probably not next year, but the year after. Mm. Would, would a Certico work in New Zealand or not? Possibly. Uh, I don't know of anyone who's growing it. Hmm. but yeah it could be something to look at for sure hmm. and which of those do you like working with most is it Albarino because of the connection with Spain it's definitely my favorite yeah <clears throat> but I do I do love working with Sauvignon I most definitely love working with Sauvignon uh but yeah the vineyard manager's like oh my gosh like every day over harvest would have to visit the uh Albarino block <laughs> well go and stroke it <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much just making sure it's perfect and um Everyone always knows, the whole cellar knows when the Albarino is coming into the winery. They're like, that's special fruits here. Everyone's <laughs> on high alert. So, yeah. <laughs> T- tell us a little bit about another side of your life, which, which is meditation, right? Um, that you went on this three-week trip to India. Just tell us a little bit about why you went there and, and how it changed you in a way. If it changed you, I'm sure it did. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I've always been, well, I sort of started doing yoga maybe about 15 years ago and, yeah, just sort of, I don't know. I don't do it as much as I should, but when I do do it, it's amazing. Uh, but, yeah, I I guess when I, it all sort of stemmed from when I had my quarter-life crisis, when I was working in HR and had my, pretty much a meltdown. I had a meltdown and I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And I was in a really stressed-out headspace and, my body, you know, I felt physically ill because I was so stressed. And at that point, I kind of thought, if I can make myself this physically ill with my mind, surely I can make myself physically well with my mind or I can do other things with my mind. Like what I've created within myself is purely in my head. It's not something that's actually happening to me externally. So that's always been quite fascinating to me. And I think that's why I've always been fascinated with meditation and what you can do with it and if you can heal your body um or or manifest things and that kind of thing um so the course that i went to india to study was pranavidya which um is the knowledge of energy and i didn't quite do my research on this and when i got there (laughs) the shwami was like oh nat do you know that this is the most advanced type of yoga that you could be doing um and i was like oh okay cool but basically Um, I was learning about um, generating energy in your body or connecting to energy and transferring it to parts of your body. And if you get really good at it, you can connect to the one source and you can actually heal people with your mind, which I felt like I was at Jedi school. And she said, you may get there in this lifetime or you may not get there in this lifetime. Um, But basically in India, there's a pranic healer in every village and it's a very traditional thing that they have um 
yeah. But yeah, it was fascinating. So I'm definitely no Jedi. I can't heal, but I felt like I was at Jedi school. No, yeah, no jokes. And it was amazing. Like I had some just really beautiful moments here. And I also wanted to strip everything away. You know, like the life I lead, not saying I live an extravagant lifestyle, but in the wine industry, you do go out for beautiful lunches all the time. You know, it's it can be quite a lovely life. And I wanted to strip all that away and be eating rice, sitting on a mat, you know, um, living very basically. And so I can really um, enjoy and value the life I do have because sometimes you can take that for granted. And, yeah, I just wanted to strip it back to basics and also actually figure out what really matters and what is important. So, and what you do truly need and what you don't need. Just an, it was just an interesting thing that I just yeah. felt, like, felt like I needed just to recalibrate. I think it's very true. And haven't you done an experiment in your barrel hall where you're playing a Vedic mantra to the wines? It's not yeah. just you that was touched <laughs> by this. Has it, did it affect the wines? Did you notice, mate? I mean, people who do this with classical music often say that you get different styles of music. And there's a guy in Chile doing, you know, jazz and rock music with the same wine. And they do taste different, right? Yeah. Well, because so part of this... Um, meditation sort of practice I was learning it was your chant mantra to get your body prepared to sort of do the meditation and I learned about different mantras that could bring about different things and so it's almost like not casting spells but you can bring about certain outcomes through chanting these really um, ancient words I thought oh if I can marry all my loves into one uh, that would be amazing so I chose a very I guess quite a neutral neutral mantra um, kind of about unity and purity and yeah I had that play so I had I did a structured experiment where I had um, half the barrels in one barrel hall with this mantra playing on repeat for six months while the wine was aging in oak and then another barrel hall that had no music playing um, but in the end I had to blend the two conditions together because we needed the volume but I did take samples from the two different conditions and I did taste them recently and the wine that had had the mantra playing was very fruity, clean, bright, harmonious, crystal clear, delicious. Uh, and unfortunately, the sample that was taken from the other barrel hall actually had a spoilage yeast in there, so you couldn't really. It was I don't yeah you couldn't really tell the difference. Well, you could. It was definitely a difference, but I don't know. So I don't know. Why? I don't know if the mantra kept the that barrel hall clean and pure and. I don't know. So jury's out, so I definitely need to do it again. So there could be something. About, I want to talk about one of your other great loves. Anybody who's seen your Instagram feed will know that you've got this amazing dress sense. I mean, you're one of the most colourful people I know. And I, I like colourful clothes. But, I mean, have you always loved clothes? I mean, do you see it as a form of self-expression? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. It's kind of weird because I don't really see myself as a big kind of fashion person, which sounds kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But I do love wearing bright things. and. I like things that make me feel happy or bring joy to other people's lives. So I read recently about dopamine dressing and I was like, that's exactly what it is. You know, like I, I like things that make me smile or I open up the cupboard and, you know, then sometimes when I walk around in black or gray, I just feel like I've wrapped myself in a big miserable cloud. Yeah. I, I like wearing color and, but now I've kind of set a rod from my own back because, um, People, if I'm not wearing something bright, people are like, what's wrong? What's happened? I'm like, oh, God, I just want to be, just want to be inconspicuous today. So, you know? 
<laughs> and what's the most outrageous outfit in your wardrobe? It must be sort of something leopard skin or something, isn't it? I mean, I've seen uh, you in all sorts uh, of things. Well, it's kind of funny. Like, I've got a lot of leopard, like, colourful leopard print, but I think when you wear stuff like that all the time, none of it feels outrageous anymore. And yeah. it doesn't feel outrageous to me at all. But one of my favourite outfits, which was actually a group gift from a group of close friends for my 40th birthday, is a pink sequined jumpsuit. So, yeah, I love wearing that. And, yeah, that's very fun. Is it on your Instagram post or not? Oh, actually, it will be on my Instagram. It's actually I'm wearing it in my, I think, my little profile picture on my Instagram account. So, Okay, so check out your Instagram. What is your Instagram account? People can check it out. Uh, Nat Christensen Wine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> check it out, folks. It's pink and it's got sequins, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us how you like to get away from wine. I mean, you know, you've got this rich life that we're hearing about outside wine. Mm-hmm. You like the outdoors. Most Kiwis do, don't you? And there's this kind of menagerie of animals, isn't there, <laughs> somewhere at home? Oh, well, actually, no, there's not. There's only um, Dickie now, who's my cat. Uh so, yeah, not only one one pet at home, but I used to have a couple of chickens. Uh, and I did look after a pet lamb for a while. So, you know, home home is just dicky now. He rules the roost. Yeah. yeah. And music, do you still play the double bass? No, I haven't played for a while now. So it's something that, yeah, I'd love to get back into. But I did play about three years ago. I played in a little band. But, yeah, it's something that I need to, if I'm being true to myself, I need to, pick that back up and you still listen to music a lot yeah 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 and i do a bit of well there's this chanting circle that i go to for the new moon where it's sort of like a group of ladies that get together it sounds a bit weird but um yeah i just feel like chanting and like singing music makes me feel good so yeah yeah and i mean you've got this very busy job high profile job chief winemaker that yellens right um do you get a chance to go overseas anymore to do other overseas harvests or it's more promotional tours and also most recently to pick up an award right you know white yeah. winemaker of the year at the international <laughs> wine challenge i mean i think you're the first kiwi woman ever to win it and the first kiwi since what 2008 to win that award yes that's right yeah um so yeah that was cra- that was very exciting um and life since then has been normal apart from there's been a few more interviews and a few more photo shoots and a lot of people coming up to me when I walk around Blenheim saying congratulations, which is lovely. And yeah, no, it's been, it's been fun, but yeah, I think like out of, I don't get to do overseas harvest really now. Um, yeah. Most of my travel was for work, but recently I did go to Bali for a week with some friends. So that was nice. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Not much, not much wine in Bali. Well, drinking wine, but not made, is it? Well, no, I don't know. Well, I'm not sure, actually, because someone was saying that there's multiple harvests in Bali because it's so hot, like kind of Thailand <laughs> growing up there. But I, two a year. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know of any Balinese wines, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you for sharing this a rich cultural life that you have behind these amazing wines. Not only a great winemaker, but I just think all this stuff that's going on in your life, you know, all these other things with music and meditation and therapy, and you're obviously a, a deep thinker, not just about wine, but about life generally, which has been a pleasure talking to you. Hope to see you very soon, either in the UK or in New Zealand. You never know. Oh, well, I hope you come out. Yeah, it'd be great to host you out at Yellens again. <laughs> that would be fun. Awatry Valley, here we come. See yeah. you vineyard. Yeah. <laughs> see you soon. Cool. Okay, thanks. Bye. Natalie's such a talent and a very easy person to chat to. Do check out her Instagram page to see some of those outfits.
Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the Californian wine legend, Zelma Long. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.